with Custodians of the Planet. Custodians of the Planet brings consciousness to environmental issues and looks at different perspectives regarding the tensions and harmony of human activities in a changing climate. When thinking about climate change, mental health might not be the first thing that comes to mind. Have you ever felt frustrated or hopeless when thinking about climate change and the future? I often do so. Know that you're not alone. In the face of uncertainty and emotions such as fear, speaking about climate change is challenging. To be able to take actions that will take us forward Being mentally strong is important and self-care is crucial. So today, to talk about mental health and climate change, psychologist Carol Wright joins us. Carol Wright is a founder of Psychology for a Safe Climate. This group of psychologists are helping professionals build awareness of how people emotionally deal with the idea of climate change as well as support people to face the issue. Carol has worked as a therapist and trainer for more than 30 years, mostly with couples in relationships. She has been involved in climate movements since 2006 and helped form a local community climate action group. Carol, welcome to Custodians of the Planet. Thanks, Denise. <laughs> <Yeah>. Hi. <laughs> First of all, we would like to hear about your journey. How did you end up in this field and can you tell us a bit about your work? Sure. Well, look, I, as you said in the introduction, I used to be a therapist and I I um, read the book by Tim Flannery called The Weathermakers and it just had such a profound effect on me and I knew I'd been avoiding learning about climate change until I read that book. So I sort of understood how people push the issue away and then when they face it, how it can actually have a huge impact on them. And it did have a huge impact on me and that's how I became involved, first of all, as a climate activist. And then later, as a climate activist, people started asking me, how can you help as a psychologist, help us understand why people don't engage with this issue? So that started me on the journey of exploring the psychological issues and then eventually forming the group Psychology for Safe Climate to work with other colleagues around that issue of helping understand and unpack the complexity of denial. And mm. and then also as time went by, we found that climate activists were feeling the impact of being an activist and feeling frustrated by the lack of action and that we needed to think about how we might support them in their work um, by offering emotional support. So it's just been a gradual transition over really 12 or 13 years for me but so much so that I ended up giving up my counselling work and just moving into doing this work full-time full or, you know, part-time really because I'm sort of, I'm at retirement age but it hastened my retirement from paid work. Yeah, it's a really interesting and an evolving field when you think about it. Hmm. Mm. There's a lot to talk today. Let's begin by talking about the intersection of health and climate. What is the importance of mental good health in climate action? Well, mental health is good in any and important in any work, of course, but for climate activists, 
because they're carrying something on behalf of the community that is not actually doing something in an engaged way around the issue, they might, you know, read about it, they might now and again write to their MP, but those who are climate activists are actually spending a lot of time and energy on the issue. So they're carrying a lot of the emotional strain of the issue on behalf of other people. So it's particularly important that they're able to think about the need to care for themselves but because they're not only feeling the strain of the issue personally, but they're also, in effect, carrying the, the emotion of the issue for those who won't engage with it. It's sort of like it permeates their their lives um, from their interactions with the world that's in denial. So it's particularly important for them to then think about how do they moderate the amount of time they give to the, to the um, activity as a climate activist, how do they take appropriate rests, how do they manage their days, and particularly how do they engage with other people in talking about and dealing with the emotional impact of what they're dealing with. Yeah. And that's been the most important area that we've actually made inroads into because we've found that people can be very active in community groups or in environment groups or as scientists or researchers or policy makers. And they're all beavering away really hard and feeling really the weight of, of the strain of the work and feeling quite often very despairing about it, but they're not talking to each other about it because they think they're an odd one out. And so one of the most important things that we have offered is workshops to people in groups for them to be able to join with other people, to use expressive means, which we offer in workshop workshop mode for people to be able to express their feelings and discover that they're actually not alone, that the person sitting next to them and on the table with them is actually feeling very similar to what they are or even the same and that they feel enormous relief from talking about how they feel. That That's the most profound finding from our work is that people are so relieved that they've actually expressed what they're feeling and that they're not alone and that others are like feeling like they are and that now I've got people that they can talk more openly with. Yeah, it is interesting because we're wired to have feelings and somehow we don't express it often even the idea of just sharing and telling how you feel it is relieving it sounds like what i really need actually <laughs> um, <laughs> yes we often find that when people interview us <laughs> i think we can all be agreed on each one of us is feeling some sort of anxiety or sadness or grief. Can you tell us what is eco-anxiety and climate grief? Are they the same or different in what terms? They they can be separate or they can be intertwined. I mean, sometimes people, eco-anxiety is really anxiety or fear about the future security of life on the planet and the ecosystem as being able to support human life um, in a general sense. And sometimes people again, don't know that's what they're feeling. They just feel unsettled and feel troubled and feel edgy and easily come to tears or anger. And if you, you know, you need, one needs to work with them to find out what it is that, that might we might call eco-anxiety, whether that's actually what they feel. 
But in in that anxiety, there may well be grief that is also not named, that, that it may be that people are feeling really very, very sad by what they know is already happening, by the impact on the world around them already of climate impacts and the impact on places they love already being impacted and then the impending loss of places they love like the Great Barrier Reef, for example, as a large icon, but then there can be something as small as their local beach their local surf club that's you know having all its mm. walls washed away every time there's a storm or there can be just the dying of trees in one's neighborhood that precious and are symbols of the place they love that's home and then once you tap into it you realize that they actually feel really sad and really angry and very uh, frightened but that that also links with what's the future going to be like so it's sort of they're intertwined but but grief is an, an emotion that's very complex. It's full of, you know, strands of other emotions. And we know that people need to express grief. They need to be heard about it. They need to talk to other people. So it's really important that it, it can be explored with people and can be named and then people can understand what they feel. And that's so healing to people to have actually a label on what they're feeling and then the complexity of grief can be understood. Yeah. There was a a fellow um, sociologist, an Australian sociologist called Glenn Albrecht who coined the term solastalgia. Yeah, Yeah. You've heard of that term, Yeah. yeah. And he used that term to describe that loss of the familiar um, that really does impact emotionally on people um it can start in small ways but it can even be when you know houses in your area are pulled down or um the streetscape changes um that can be linked with solastalgia but i think if we think about in relation to nature it's another dimension of grief about climate change really yeah it's interesting because this weekend I read on the news, one lady was pretty upset because she can't do gardening anymore due to the droughts in New South Wales, when that Mm. has been such a huge part of her life. Mm. Yeah, it's really sad. So what do you think about the direct experience of climate change and the feeling of losing cultural identity? Look, I think it's it's a very relevant thought to to consider. I mean, I, I'm a gardener myself, so I actually understand that lady. I, I treasure my garden, but I look at it and think, oh, you know, the hottest season, some plants don't survive anymore, and how long am I going to have this treasure? And certainly in New South Wales, it's so much drier than here. So imagine, you know, many gardeners are really suffering. And I think one one can identify as a gardener or um, can identify as a, um, a person who lives in a certain local area that we all love our area, for example. You know, we love the beach or we love the parks. or we And, and so part of our identity is as a member of that community that together loves something. And so when that, that uh, place that we love is impacted by climate change, it can feel it create a sense of not belonging anymore. So where do I belong then? Because the place that sort of unites us has um, is really 
fraying and so it requires extra a tenacity and an openness to, for people to hold on to the bonds between them and not let that that sadness sort of cause the, the community to fall into disarray. I think in a similar way, though, when you think about loss of identity, that people can have a, a group of friends who they feel very close to. And with climate change, some people experience that their friends don't feel the same way as they do. They've shut climate change out. They think it's something in the future. It's something mm. they helped us about. And so people can then feel a loss of identity with that group of friends that feel like they're not the friends that I thought they were. They're not people I can be open with anymore. Um, they can mm. feel quite isolated. And that's a very dangerous time for people if they're isolated from maybe friends or family and can't feel they can talk about what really is troubling them and get dismissed if they try to open up. I mean, we even had our Prime Minister doing it, unfortunately, <laughs> saying, you know, to young people, we don't want to worry young people unnecessarily. Well, you know, young people are worried necessarily. There is a reason they're worried. And to dismiss them as being unnecessarily worried only makes them feel more isolated and, and odd rather than feel like they're belonging to a community of concern. So there's all sorts of ways in which I can lose identity, I think. Yeah, and I think this isolation also tends to intensify the polarization between two worldviews. It is interesting because recently I met with someone in a cafe and we were just having a lovely chat. And at one point, I think I asked him, what does he do for a living? And he told me that he was a mining engineer and then I paused and I asked a question to find out or to sense whether he's a skeptic, climate skeptic or a denier and I think he was and then I was being awkward and then I left. So I want to ask you, have you ever worked with climate change deniers or skeptics? What did you learn about their thought patterns? And is there any way to shift their thinking? Look, I think for many people who are entrenched deniers, there is an investment in holding on to that belief no matter what comes in the way of challenging it. There's, It probably is something to do with identity, and, you know, that... Partly they've created an identity now as a climate denier, but also the sense of the impact of and the change that's we're heading our way with climate change is sort of beyond their comprehension and they can't bear it. I mean, I think that there's a lot of it that's quite, they're quite frightened of the impacts of that and what they might lose. So they build up a wall of denial around themselves and they spend all their energy building up argument upon argument upon argument to defend it's like a wall. So I think there are some climate deniers it is no point talking to because, and I've noticed this myself, that you know many of them want to engage you because they just want to drain you <laughs> and, and you will never get anywhere. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. And they drain you away from the thing that you really want to be talk, doing, which is, you know, like if you're climate activist on the street wanting to talk to the passers-by 
a climate denier or love to be able to engage you because they can you, engage you for an hour away from what you really want to do. <laughs> and, and look, for some people, it is impossible for them to contemplate the change and it does feel like there's too much change for, for them to bear. And we have to, we have to accept there are some people who just cannot contemplate the impact of the sort of change that is too much for them to bear. But there are other people who have got such vested interests in things remaining as they are that they're going to put all their energy into that. And then there are other forms of denial where it's sort of, we call it sort of, it's a partial denial. They, they know and they don't know at the same time. They know bits of information, but they block it out and they hang on to something that's sort of a minor little question about climate change and, and build that up. So we, we all have, and we all have ways of, doing that around all sorts of issues, you know, around health. We can think about it with health issues that we can know that certain ways of living are not good for our health, but we can also block them out. <laughs> we can yeah. not read any more about that. We read about all the people who are challenging it, you know. We, we've got human beings have got wonderful capacity <laughs> to <laughs> engage in denial when we don't want to know the truth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I know many young people who find it difficult to talk about their parents or grandparents about the reality of climate change in a constructive or meaningful way. Sometimes it seems the older generations, some, definitely not all, just don't get it or don't want to change the way they've always lived and voted. So what do we need to have a meaningful and constructive conversations about the climate crisis? Well, I think it's probably not to argue with them all the time. It's probably to listen to what they're saying and really attentively listen to what their, their reasons are and... Um, so that you're not always in, in a combative situation. and But there are other ways also of maybe feeding them some information that's digestible. Or there's, there, there's groups like Climate for Change that hold um, gatherings in people's homes for friends and family. And they have a facility, I don't know whether you know about them in New South Wales, but they're a very active group in Victoria. And they hold... Um, these facilitated gatherings in people's homes for 10 to 12 people and they present a short film on climate change and then open up a discussion about climate mm. change. And, and that, that can be very helpful because it means um, the person who is the family member doesn't have to do the, the presenting of the information. They can be part of the group or they can suggest that their parents and family, you know, ha have a, a gathering um, and try to let someone else do the informing. And and that's a very, that can be very constructive because people can feel when they're with friends or family, they can be perhaps a little bit, take a few more risks and maybe open up if there's a good facilitator there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea actually. It, it, people might be able to look it up on the web. It's Climate for Change. Um, I know that they are considered, I think they might have started in Queensland as well, but they've been very well established in Melbourne and Victoria. 
But mm. it's it's a great idea, I think, to have someone neutral to sort of present the information instead of the, the same old battering of heads in the yeah. family. And it's like a collective thing, so it's not just one-on-one and people, yes. people yes. don't feel they're judged or like pointed out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. I mean, there can be other... I mean, that's I would, that would be my top pick, but um, sometimes people can't have access to that. But, you know, to go to a film that's been recommended can be good. It means you... You're there as participants in something, but someone else is delivering the information. You know, a bit like how Al Gore did in those, uh, <laughs> in, you know, in the Inconvenient Truth films. Yeah, um, so powerful. They had a big impact. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, and David Attenborough, of course, that's the other one. His, his recent film, The Facts on Climate Change, I mean, it's just he's such a loved figure and such a reliable figure. That's right. I'm not sure whether that film has been as used as much as it could be because he he does it in such a lovely manner. That's <laughs> but right. But he doesn't be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember the few documentaries I watched earlier just helped me to become a vegetarian and then become oh. a vegan. So I think they're mm. quite powerful in that mm. sense. Yeah. Yep. Yes. But they're also people's personal stories can be influential that maybe rather than arguing with somebody who's a friend or family to just talk about like you're saying for yourself you know your own experience and what impacted on you and just talking in terms of well this is how i form my view and not sort of pressuring the other person to change that can be very useful because people you know if they respect you and you tell about the story of the impact on yourself Mm -hmm. um it can have quite a an impact later you know people go away and think about it and they might end up reading something that they normally wouldn't read yeah. you know very few people change their mind on the spot so i think we have to think about being part of a process of influencing people yeah that's right we talked about elders let's talk about the youth there are a lot of parents and teachers who are trying to communicate the crisis to young kids do you have any recommendations for parents or teachers is it better to wait till they reach a certain age how can we encourage positive action rather than equal anxiety and helplessness and or even resentment um it's a very important question i think that we live in a society where kids are so aware of what's going on that mm. we can't pretend that they don't know about climate change um certainly secondary school kids and that they'll be asking questions and wanting clear information so i think it's really important for people to respond where kids are at and likewise for parents and i think it's hard it's very challenge for parents is to um acknowledge that their kids might be anxious But it's so important to acknowledge the concerns people have and what they're worried about rather than trying to dismiss them because that only produces more anxiety because they feel like, well, nobody understands me. So it's it's a challenging time for parents to really respond appropriately and listen respectfully to their children and really understand what they're feeling. And I think if parents are able to do that and even if they're not well versed in the subject themselves it does behove them to learn a bit more so that they actually have a discussion with their children 
I know one of my neighbours told me that their kid had taken them to the climate strike and they said, and their daughter came home and from then on she was telling them how they had to change this and change that. And, mm-hmm. and the family were very supportive, but they hadn't been involved in any way before. But their daughter was the medium for changing the family's behaviour and awareness about climate change. Mm-hmm. So that can happen. And I think that, you know, parents and teachers have uh, then a responsibility to help children realise that if they're anxious, one of the best antidotes to anxiety is to actually being involved in taking action and Mm. to supporting children, to getting together in groups and to working out what they can do. That is the most healthy way. You read story upon story of people who are anxious who once they got into taking action, it it felt so much more constructive for them and they had somewhere to do, to um, direct their energy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, join with other people, which creates a community of concerned people, which is really, really productive. It's socially developed mental as well as um, healthy for their, their mental health. Yeah. What about the a bit younger younger kids? So is it better to learn from the parents first time about the climate crisis or do you think is it better to learn from the school or their friends and then they can have a chat about it? Well, I think that parents can do things for young children. We're we talking about the primary age or in the young, you know, young in the primary, primary school, age children. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think it's important for families to behave in ways that and talk about what they're doing. Like simple things like recycling can be engaged in with education for the children, why mm. we're doing this, and connecting it with the huge waste problem we've had and the the fact that we're consuming more from the taking more from the planet all the time and it can't go on endlessly. I mean, there are ways of of educating children without having to get into the deep issues around climate change, just that we need to care for the planet and care for nature and care for the beaches and care for the parks and the the animals and the plants and so on. So I think that ethos can be very much part of family life and it naturally brings kids up to be concerned citizens who are likely to then develop concern about climate change, even if they're too young to be um, involved in it now. Uh, and I think the same at schools, and I think some of schools are doing amazing things in terms of their education programs and primary schools that I've spoken to in primary schools to parents, and they're, they're doing amazing things, um, raising awareness in the school, and that, of course, then influences other parents yeah. um, to, to consider the issue. So it's a sort of, you know, each builds upon the other. An active parents group can encourage kids and teachers can work with them and then it can build a community in a school um, of great awareness about climate change, which is ultimately going to lead to them being activists for, in some way for change around climate change. Mm. Yeah. And what about adults? Can you tell us about the initiatives offered by local councils to support community health in the face of climate change? Look, I don't know of councils actually taking on the community mental health around climate change. It's mm. um, certainly some of the councils that have declared a climate emergency mm-hmm. um, will 
uh, some of them are taking on a, a new arm in their, their programs around the climate emergency and I think we'll eventually move on to including something about people's mental health. But I'm not aware of any council who's overtly offered that to the community. I know some councils have, have participated in our workshops to sort of consider the mental health well-being of their staff, but... Um, I think that is the next step. Yeah. Mm. I think that is the next step that needs to occur. Really, is is community is starting at a council community level of um, building people's awareness of the emotional impact and helping to build people's capacity to cope with Mm. the impacts, um, so that they actually are able to um, recover from events that are extreme weather events and prepare for themselves emotionally for the increase in those which is you know really alarming to have to think about but we know that people can suffer post-traumatic stress in severe weather events Um, and we need to help people um, understand the impact of of trauma on their bodies um, so that they can help manage the impact get help if they need it but also building awareness in communities so that people can support each other in healthy responses to trauma so that people are able to be prepared for the next event, which is, you know, it's, it's terrible to have to say, but we do know there's going to be an increase in the sequencing of events, the space between them is not going to be as great. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And I think it's quite interesting because, as you said, all these changing weather events and other disasters, they're already traumatizing. Mm. And most of, like right now, most of them are beyond human control, whereas climate change is human-induced. So probably this would reflect on people in other ways, like aggression or other kinds of Mm. emotions. Mm, Interesting. I think think it's a huge potential problem because... When people are stressed, they don't even have to be traumatised, just stressed, you know, like on a really hot day, for example. You know, <laughs> the traffic doesn't move, they're hot in their cars, they've got yeah. to get to somewhere in a deadline, they've got to pick their kids up from childcare and they're hot and bothered and something goes wrong and then they've got to have a short fuse. And before we know where we are, people are arguing and there are fisticuffs and, you know, people... Unfortunately, when they're stressed, have got the the potential to actually lash out at each other. And that can have very damaging effects on friendships, on neighbourhoods and on communities. Mm. Um, And I think, and ultimately, I think that's a, a really threatening prospect for communities to have climate impacts creating disharmony in communities and creating fringe groups that are um, going to exploit that sort of division in the community and um, create more, more, more and more divisions mm-hmm. and, and maybe far-right groups. So it's the potential for ongoing trauma and chronic stress having an impact on, on community health is enormous, really enormous. Mm. We've written a bit about it in, we made a submission to the state governments 
um, mental health inquiry. We made reference to that, but it's very marginally talked about at the moment as one of the very, very likely and threatening impacts of of um, climate breakdown, really. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it doesn't sound really promising. <laughs> all all this othering and aggression and division in mm. society. Hmm. So my final question is to avoid this division and aggression. Can you give us a few tips to take care of ourselves? Yes, I, I would say, you, you mean we as the climate activists or yeah. we as, yeah, we yeah, as we climate, climate activists. activists? And obviously we as custodians of the planet. <laughs> I would say first and foremost, make sure you connect with a group of people with whom you can be open and honest about how you're feeling and whom, with whom you can discuss when what you know are your points at which you need a bit of a break when you need support, maybe even a, a plan that you you could discuss with others about what you're going to do when you're needing some some help, like you know what the signs are when you're feeling very stressed. Somebody else might then be able to pick up and say, "Hey, didn't you tell me that when you get stressed, you get you know you get you eat a lot or something, or you you know it tend to tend to shy away and not have anything to do with people." I've noticed you like that late, lately. I'm just wondering whether you're okay. Question of are you okay by having a group of people who are concerned about the same issue but can be open when they're not coping is really important. Mm. And that that group provides permission for people to take, step back and say, yeah, look, I'm not coping too well. I'm going to have a month's break out of this group. Um, but I'd like to stay in touch with you. Yeah. Um, so... The, it's interesting, the Extinction Rebellion group have got a regenerative culture strand of their work, which is about exactly that, about people working together but making sure that they've got a self-care plan that they've thought out, that they're mm. actually able to think about what they need to do when things are getting too much and give themselves permission to take time out. So that's one thing. That's if things get very... Extreme, but to try and pre prevent things getting extreme is to also temper one's activity, making sure that you put some limits around the amount of time that is given to the activity, that there's some time for leisure, there's time for being with friends, there's time for blobbing out, there's time for just being alone. And that people give some t consideration to all that. And that they think about what is healthy for them in terms of food and exercise and also about how they manage their time on um, media, you know, that they don't take their iPad and their phone to bed and look at it first thing in the morning and last at night, that they have some breaks from being deluged with all the information there is, that it's really important to manage that. Yeah. It's also important to think about just breathing that people are stressed, you know, take six <laughs> deep breaths is really amazingly helpful and to give for a person to give themselves permission to do that. But it also for it to be a practice in a group that like, come on, let's sit down and let's just have some quiet time just breathing slowly and counting our breath in and counting it out and mm. just sitting for a few and for that practice to come into a group. It's really good. It can be the beginning of a meeting. Mm. 
Yeah, it, it, it sounds really supportive. And often we just, I mean, I sometimes realize I have this shallow breathing. I don't breathe properly. Then this is happening unconsciously. And then when I realize, I just try to take deep breaths from my abdomen. And it significantly helps. Huh. <laughs> yes, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So those simple things, but there's also people trying out meditation if they haven't. Um, there's some really good apps on the on the internet that help people start to learn to meditate. And to build that into one's practice is a really good way of just having some space that's quiet and reflective and um, and it's a way of building in a, a, a care for oneself into the day's plan and putting it in first in the day is often very important. Yeah. Carol Wright is a founder of Psychology for a Safe Climate. Carol, thank you so much for taking the time today. Pleasure, Denise. Pleasure. Custodians of the Planet is an independent and freely available media program and relies entirely on contributions from listeners. If you appreciate what we do and would like to support us, there are a few ways to do so. Start a conversation with your friends and colleagues and be part of the change. Share a link to our podcasts on social media. Donate to our podcast. Each episode is the product of hours of on-location audio recording editing, research, scheduling, and music composition. Just $10, a couple of coffees will sustain the hours of labor that go into producing each episode and ensure Custodians of the Planet is an ongoing series. Thank you for your support.
For this episode, I'd like to say special thanks to Bongos for editing the scripts and Christian Fortas for his technical support. I'm Denise Zildes. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.